Hey, we are in Seek First, as we just sang um, this teaching series that we've been beginning the year with by investigating what it looks like for us to live with an undistracted pursuit of God, uh, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so as we've been moving through this series, this has been what we've been trying to develop. What would it look like for us, both as individuals and as a community, to enter into 2024 from a, a place of understanding what it means to truly follow God first. Uh, something that sounds great when you sing it, but what does it actually look like in our lives? And so that's what we've been developing. And so today we arrive at what will be a significant uh, moment within this series. I, I think, honestly, the key of what it means to seek first. And with it, like Lo just said, uh, some new uh, dynamics of just what this is going to look like and how we'll be following this out um, in the coming year as collective. So we'll get into that in just a moment. But first, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It'll also be on the slides behind me for those of you uh, that, that don't happen to have a Bible. We also have some at the back of the room. Those are our little free gift to you. Um, I, in particular, apart from anybody else in the room, um, have been transformed through um, reading and studying and understanding this book. And so we have some freebies that we would love to have, send you home with uh, to call your own. But Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, uh, we'll read it. But first, let's just begin uh, with a posture of prayer and receptivity to what God has already uh, shown himself to be doing in this place today. And God, we want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Um, it is there and in that pursuit that we find that all that we need will be provided for us. We find within that undistracted pursuit of you the life that we are made for. Uh, because you are creator. You are the one at the center of everything. And so we just pray that today as we read, as we study, as we talk, as we walk further into this new year, that you would show us what it means to live with you at the center. Come Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said, and as they listened and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. Amen. So the story, we're picking up, obviously, we're in chapter 8, so it's evident that there's a story going on so far. This is the birth, the launch of the movement of Jesus' people. The church, at its earliest stages, in its earliest infancy years, is spreading and scattering around the world. And Philip here, as one of these young, upstart kind of evangelists, has made his way to the often scorned and kind of spurned Samaria and as he arrives, he begins to preach and minister. And what happens is, is Buddy catches lightning in a bottle. There begins to be this dynamic revival that starts and happens within the region of Samaria as people are experiencing the freeing, the healing work of God's Spirit. So insightful, so powerful is this dynamic moment in the book of Acts that Luke saves his first mention of the word joy for right here to describe verse 8. Great joy existing as Samaria and Philip partner together in this ministry work. There's been a lot of things that you could call Pentecost has already happened at this point. And yet Luke has saved great joy for some reason to describe this dynamic work that's happening in Samaria. Now, if you were to put yourselves in, in Philip's shoes for a moment, and, and specifically, what does it mean for Philip to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What does it look like for Philip to lean into what God is doing in, in his life, so to speak? And your assumption would be, based on these first four verses, that Philip would settle in, take a deep root grounding, you, give yourself to a life of ministry in Samaria, keep on writing. This is the time. So Philip, be faithful. After all your scattered searching, you found it. You found the very thing that God has been calling you to. And it's so evident because his hand is on the ministry. God's hand is evidently at work. There's a great joy here. But just a few verses later, verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So all of Philip and our assumptions so far in the story is that the life 
that Philip has set for him is one of setting his roots down deep in Samaria, continuing in this ongoing revival. And in the arrival, the interruption of this angel, he gets called to what by many, by his own understanding, it's the opposite. Philip, I'm calling you to leave this dynamic revival to join me on a desert road, to walk with me and let me pave your way. This is a key dynamic of what it means to seek God and put him first. So often, most of our language about pursuing God or seeking God gets wrapped up and bottled and like put forward largely as talk about spiritual experiences. To seek first and pursue God, what does that look like? It's, you know, you're you on the floor, on the mat, crying and weeping. You're like, oh, they're pursuing God. That's the person who's seeking God. Or we wrap it in in spiritual practices. What does it mean to seek God? And it's like, well, I fast once a week. I'm Sabbathing weekly. I do these, you know, annual quarterly retreats where I get away, Right? Most of our seeking and pursuing of God largely is wrapped up in spiritual experiences or spiritual practices. And you guys hopefully have known me long enough. I'm not against either of those things. But Philip's life reveals that a primary directive and key element of what it means to pursue God with an undistracted passion means that you're not just opening up your practices or your heart for an experience, but your desires, your ambitions, your life. Most of us see, like I said, the pursuit of God as being something which we can compartmentalize from the rest of our life, in particular, our ambitions and our desires. Most of us seem to think as though we can either compartmentalize our desires away from what it means to pursue God, or we, we just simply try to convert and win God over to our ambitions and our desires and what we want to do with our life. That's most of our prayer life. If you honestly like sit down, like when you finally do pray, maybe it will give you some credit. You pray more than that. But when you do pray so often, what do your prayers sound like? God, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I want. So God, give me this ambition. God, make this desire come true. God, fulfill this want within me. Most of our pursuit of God comes in the form of trying to convert God over to the ambitions and desires that we have Or we just simply compartmentalize them, that there's my spiritual Jesus stuff, and then there's my career, there's my relationships, there's the life that I'm building and I'm living, where God is part of that, but not the primary directive that I'm seeking through all of that. And so for all of us, this is the key dynamic of the life that puts God first, is that we begin to say, not just through spiritual practices or spiritual experience, but my very life, my wants, my dreams are surrendered to what God is up to within me and within this world. And I'm open and willing to him directing me wherever he sees fit. This is, this is what it means to seek first, is to open ourselves up to this. And the problem when we could try to win God over to what we want or we compartmentalize is we cut ourselves off from the very life that God has for us. We seek an experience of his kingdom. We seek to to participate in the work that he's doing within this world. We seek his righteousness for more of that to be our experience of life. And it just, as you will always be held up by whatever it is you're unwilling to surrender. It'll be a weight bearing you down. And so for those of us that want to seek first, the problem, we want to follow Philip's example, but the problem in verse 26, at least immediately for me when I'm reading this, is that Philip has an angel. I haven't gotten one of those. And that'd be, like, so far, maybe some of you are like, yes, totally, that's what I want, but I find it so difficult. So, so like, I, I want that. I want to live a whole life surrendered. And so what we're looking for is, like, an angel to show up, you know, at the dining room table tonight and just be like, do you have a pen and paper? So here's the address, right? Here's the, here's the company. Here's the person. Like, you just call her and be like, an angel told me to marry you. And she's like, really? I've been waiting for this. It never works that way. But we, we all would love to have an angel, and yet most of us don't. Now, we are, are the kind of tribe uh, and part of Christianity where we wholly believe that these kinds of divine interruptions, as we might call them, still at some level do happen. Prophetic, with dreams, a prophetic word that comes from someone. But, but, but that's a sermon for another time. What I want to focus on is the primary way, because Philip seems to be a little bit of an exception here with his little angel, the primary way that God seems to be inviting us into a life of pursuing him first isn't always through divine interruptions, but it always is through the uh, interpretation of our desires. 
discerning and understanding what's going on within my heart. And finding that as I begin to slow myself down and quiet myself enough to acknowledge what's going on within me, I begin to find that those are the very places that God is speaking like specific words of what it means to follow him in those things. Now, for the sake of time, I, we, could, we could swim in Bible verses today, but I'm gonna, you, you find verses that tell the opposite this week of what I'm gonna say. Feel free to come and tell me and I'll come up here and recant because I, I, I'm trying to summarize. But what, what so often happens is most of us, we live our lives propelled by our desires. Your desires, your wants, your ambitions, your dreams are the fuel within you that propel you through every single day. You're just a mess of desires bumping around through a world of potential wants and dreams and things. And, and part of the life of seeking first is slowing down long enough to discern what's going on with all of these. And what does it mean for me to seek God in the midst of it? What does it mean for me to say yes to Jesus in the midst of that one, in the midst of that ambition and that desire? That slowing down work to discern your desires is the primary work, and I'm pulling from in particular, like Ignatian spirituality here from St. Ignatius, this is the primary work of discipleship, is bringing God into your desires and allowing him to speak into them. And so early on in, in your spiritual you know, journey, maybe that's for some of you, you're not even on that yet, so this is what, what you're signing up for. But for most of us who've been following for Jesus some time, we know that one of the primary things that happens as we begin to slow down and pay attention to our desires is we find a bunch of them that are actually really destructive, that keep us from the life that God has for us, and so part of living into and seeking first, saying yes to Jesus, is by saying no to those things. Like, that's just discipleship 101, right? But part of the movement here is not to um, snap yourself with a rubber band every time you desire the wrong thing. Part of listening to these desires is discerning how underneath this loud desire is a deeper desire that God is actually inviting me into in the midst of it. Last fall, I went through a book with a handful of Men in the Church um, called Unwanted by Jay Stringer, book on unwanted sexual behavior that is 100% a recommendation. You didn't think you were coming in for this today, but here it is. Um, and the whole basis of um, Jay Stringer, who's a Christian therapist and psychologist, and all this study and work, and what he found was time and again that when we began to look at those primary desires and lusts and drivers that keep bringing us to do unwanted behavior, then most often the church and our way of responding is, is to like guilt and shame you into like not do, wanting that anymore. And what he found both through scripture but also through practice is the best way to address that unwanted behavior is to realize and find that at the very deep core and seed of that is a deeper desire that actually at the end of the day is found in God and in the life that he has for you. As the old saying goes, every guy that goes into a brothel is looking for God. And so part of the first movement of, of seeking God first is bringing those desires that we find to be unwanted or destructive and allowing God to transform them through his spirit, moving us into obedience and righteousness and also fulfillment and gratitude and grace as we find God at work within them. That's the one of the first dynamics, the stages, I guess you could say, of all of this. The second one is as we begin to grow and mature is we also find that there are desires within our heart which are good or even neutral desires which we just have to learn how to carry as being unmet for a season or for our lives. Because at the end of the day, you are a human being and you have limitations. So much of us, we live with FOMO or, or FOBO, fear of better offer, or fear of missing out kind of stuff. And so much of that is motivated by the fact that we have a desire that's so much bigger than our embodied lives. You, you have limited, you have, just like everyone here, you have limited numbers of hours in the day, of places that you can be, people that you can meet. There's one, you know, country song, you can only drive one hot rod at a time. <laughs> you can only live one life at a time, right? And so the whole point is, as we begin to give ourselves over to what we find God calling us to and the relationships and the life and the place is that we find as I cannot travel the world, I can't be the jet setter that I thought if I'm gonna give myself to the family, this other good desire that I have. I can't do this and that, and so for the sake of this greater desire, I will carry this as being unmet, acknowledging my limitations, that I'm a human with limitations. And that is part of seeking God, pursuing him, learning to live into the rhythms and limitations of your life 
saying yes to those things that are just for you and being able to hold with a grace the things that you just acknowledge are not bad, they're not destructive, but for the sake of this, I'm gonna let go of that, at least for this season. But part of the dynamic, now most of our development of our desire stuff stops here, but there's another huge dynamic within scriptures, Ignatian spiritualities really highlights this, is that one of the other things that we do with our desires in learning how to interpret them so we can seek and pursue God is coming to realize that in the mix of all those desires I've got bumping around in here, there are some desires which are how God is leading you. That for you to say yes to God, will feel, that will be you saying yes to that desire. Now, some of us have been raised in particular Christian traditions where right now you've got like bells going off in your head. Go read scripture this week. Come back and tell me otherwise. Yes, there are desires that are destructive, but there are desires in your heart where for you to say yes to Jesus involves saying yes to that deeply held desire within your heart. And then part of these desires as well includes and involves, as we're opening ourselves up for God to look at these desires, we also open ourselves up to receive new ones from him. Oh, that wasn't there yesterday. <laughs> but now I want this. And maybe even replaces some of those other desires, right? Like this is the work of pursuing God, not just as a spiritual practice or an experience, but as a whole life, whole self kind of thing. At the very deepest center of your dreams and your ambitions and your desires, bringing God into that, interpreting and understanding them with him. And so the main problem that most of us face, though, is um, I'm a spaghetti mess of desires, Ryan, that are all going a hundred different ways. And there are some things that in one moment might be the good thing that tomorrow might not be the right thing. And I, so I, how do I interpret them? How do I understand them? And so again, throughout scripture, what we find is that this is not a self-led project where you get to be the one with the pen deciding which ones are which. We interpret and understand the desires not through the autonomous self, but by subjecting them to God through prayer and through community, bringing them to people that are around us and with us. Hey, this is what I'm finding. What do you think about this? Through the study of scripture and in all of it, time. Giving our desires breathing room to see, to quote one scripture totally out of context, where have you come from and where are you going? Where is this desire from and where is it taking me? And to look at that through community and prayer and all that. Now, Philip is so lucky, Right? Because that was, that was a, a decent bit of, of growth of what it means to pursue God in the midst of our desires. He just gets an angel that shows up and says, get up and go. And yet, even in the midst of him having an angel, I honestly believe that all of these dynamics were at work within Philip. Him having to work through hearing this invitation, a new calling, a new desire being placed on him. One that really did mean the release and letting go of the very thing that just a couple verses earlier was his dream. Everything that he had been called into in, being an evangelist for was to see these kinds of communities take shape. And this emotion, this wrestle of discerning God's desire so that we might seek and pursue him is something which over the past uh, few years has become immensely um, relatable to me. I understand Philip in a way that I, I never thought I could. Because over the past two years, as we've been working through discerning of desire, desires and processing through this, um, Aaron and I have discerned alongside with the pastors and key members of community that, um, that we believe that God is calling us to get up and go. Um, that we believe that God is calling us into a new thing, to leave behind, like Philip, a dream job, a dream community, a dream church, a dream pastoral team, and to walk a desert road that we really aren't quite sure exactly what it's going to look like. And so for those of you that are new today, <laughs> um, welcome. Uh, I, 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 there's just no way around it. Um, this is what we, we've discerned. And so honestly, for the, our time today, the remaining time, honestly, what I want to try to do is there's so many questions and emotions that come up in the midst of hearing this. I'm 100% aware of that. I've been in many of y'all's shoes before at other churches that I've been a part of. And, um, and so today what I would like to do is, is just bring all of you in on what this process has looked like for the Smiths. Um, one, just so that you know that we're not 
just this full transparency within our church when it comes to our leadership as much as we can be fully transparent to this process. Um, I, I, I didn't do anything dumb. I mean, I, yes, but not like disqualifying <laughs> dumb. Um, Lorenzo and Casey, or what did I say, Casey? Lorenzo and Isaac. Hey, Isaac. Um, Lorenzo and Isaac, I, I pastoral like dream team to serve with that I just can't even imagine um, leaving behind, and yet that's been exactly what we've discerned over the past couple of years. And so my, my hope today is just to bring you in kind of on the story so far, what got us here, where we're going. Um, my hope in all of this is that this might in some way be not just, again, you being able to look in and see where we've been through, um, but in some way being like a, a practical but imperfect example of what I, what I honestly just talked about, what it means to discern those desires. Um, because I, I've become convinced that this is the sweet spot of what it means to, to, to pursue God. It's the hardest part. And yet it, it's, it's, it's where it happens. Um, so Aaron and I have been married for, thir- we're going on 13 years, um, which is wild when we are as young as we are. Um, some people wait until they like, you know, got themselves together to get married. We're like, we'll figure it out on the fly. We'll, we'll figure this out as we go. Um, but over those 13 years, um, Aaron has always carried a deep desire within her for um, the sort of intergenerational life that she grew up with within her family, um, a family that everybody lived in close proximity within Northwestern North Carolina. Everybody was 30 minutes at most from one another, and so family and friends was a blurred line, and um, that kind of intergenerational life is something that Aaron has desired and wanted at a deep level for as long as we've been married, and early on within our marriage, the primary framework that we had regarding that kind of desire was, um, remember I talked about some desires are bad, you know, destructive things that need to be like rejected and and pushed away, is we just had a a theological framework given to us where all desires, full stop, are always like idolatrous to be repented of. And so that was largely for Aaron, the first couple of our years in our marriage was Aaron carrying this desire to be closer to family and like, you know, lashing herself through like repentance and prayer, like God, free me from this desire. So like this idol that I have in my heart and, and all that it was doing was it wasn't speaking to the desire. And so it was just swelling up with guilt within her. And I, and I'm, you know, I was, you know, we got married very, very young. So I'm like, I don't know, like, you know, just listen, I don't know, read the Bible more. Like, I don't know. Like, what do you do with that? And so as we continued in our marriage, um, one of the great gifts that we had was the experience of spiritual direction where you just have these very, very old guys, like Yodas, you know, you know, Dumbledore Yoda kind of guys in the faith who just sit you down and go like, no, dummy, like this is how this works sometimes. And one of the things that was so helpful for them was like, yes, totally, there are some desires which are destructive and to be resisted, and yet there are some desires which are good, and yet by God's grace, you carry them as being unmet for the sake of another desire. And for the most of our marriage up to this point, that, that was largely the way that Aaron carried that desire to be closer to family, was this is one of many deep desires that I have, and yet that desire and us doing ministry on the West Coast that we love, those two are kind of mutually exclusive, right? And so, so, what, so what do I do? I, I pray and I ask God to not free me from this desire, but help me carry this as being unmet. Give me the grace just to carry this. And for, for years, that was exactly what God, by his grace, provided Aaron with, with just a grace and a peace to carry that desire while being unmet. And that's what guided us through our time in Reno. That's what brought us to Collective. And even the kind of, that, having a couple of years of Aaron experiencing that way, that's what led us to Collective and really believing, like, we're setting our roots down deep in L.A. within Collective. Is that's a deep desire that Aaron has. And yet, this is, this is where we, we honestly what we just discern and process through, where we want to put our roots down deep. And that kind of intention carried us through uh, 2019, 2020, remember that? <laughs> All through that, like there was no, like, we, like Aaron just still had the, this is hard, but this is where we're supposed to be. And then we came through 2021, 2020, we, we not only had all the 2020 stuff that y'all had, we also had another, we had our second, so that was fun. Um, but we, you, you guys think a pandemic is fun. Throw a baby, newborn in the midst of it. That's very fun. Um, that was, you guys didn't think the pandemic was fun. That was not, that was joking. I know the pandemic wasn't fun. Um, anyway, as we were processing through um, all of 2020, all of 2021, we just had this deep sense, like this is where we're supposed to be. That peace, kind of that grace to carry that unmet desire was with Aaron. 
And then as we came into the beginning of 2022 and then really around spring and summer of 22, the, that desire, it was almost as if the grace to carry it kind of just dropped out for Aaron. And she didn't know what to do with that. Where that volume and that tension of what do I do with this desire, I know it's not something to like repent of, but it's I, the grace to carry it is just I keep praying and bring this, and I just I don't find that there. I feel like God is wanting me to do something with this, and I don't know what. And so she's coming to me with all this. Meanwhile, collective, y'all, we, we began to step into a new life and a new season on the other side that was just I, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Like, life and gifting and, and with, with just a, a new dynamic where the future set before us. And I was just, okay, here we go. Now we got through all of that. Now we're running. Now we're going. We got the momentum. God's clearly, his spirit is at work within us. And so I was doing that during my work days, right? Doing all that ministry stuff, doing that on our Sundays as I'm preaching. And then we would go to date night or we would be in the kitchen making dinner and Aaron's going, I don't know what to do with this desire. And so now she has a desire that is in direct confrontation to all of my desire, which is staying at Collective and staying at LA because I stinking love this, right? And so what, what do you do? We just entered in, we went into like months of this stalemate between these two desires of Aaron not saying, I hate Collective, get me out of here, but just, I don't know what to do with this desire. This, 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 it's this resonance within me that I don't know what to do with. And so part of it was, giving some benefit of the fact that sometimes God leads through our desires. That kind of led us to going, okay, so we got to discern this. And so we brought in Lorenzo and Za. We brought in Isaac and Shana. Help us process, help us think through. Talking to my spiritual director of like, what do I do? Because I just feel like we're at like this locked stalemate where if I draw a line in the sand with Aaron, I say, this is where God's called us. This is where my desire is. That Aaron would, she's, she's not a wimp. She would be able to do it. But my fear is just that she would resent me for the rest of our marriage. And Aaron on the other side was like, if I draw a line in the sand and say, no, th this is my desire, this is where I feel like God's calling me, that I would relent and we would go closer to family, but that I would resent her for the rest of our marriage. So we were stuck in this tension point. And so Jim, my spiritual director, ever the wise guy, said, maybe you guys should just pray <laughs> for a year and don't have any decision-making discussions, but just pray, gather data. His one insight was continue to give yourself 100% to collective. Some people are like, should we leave? And they're like, we'll pray about it. And then they slowly leave as part of their prayer. He goes, you give yourself fully to collective so that the decision would be even harder, more painful, but that much more true, that much more reliable. So we said, okay, we're going to enter into this year of, of prayer. And so Aaron, as we moved into fall of 2022, your prayers were largely like, not my will. She's like, you know, praying Jesus' prayers. Not my will, but yours be done. God, show me your will. God, show us your will. What do you, what do you want us to do in the midst of these desires? Ryan's prayers was, God, change Aaron. <laughs> Every morning, I'm just like, you know, this, this verse is about Aaron, like, change her heart. Because... I just have this stubborn insistence, and this is the danger and the necessity of discerning our desires. Is a desire for me to be a part in a pastor collective is a good thing. And yet the dynamic reality, though, is that we have to listen to the story that God is telling through our lives and be more committed to the God who gave us the desires than the desires themselves to allow him to give us new ones. And fall of 22, your guy was not doing that. <laughs> stubborn insistence. God, change her. God, change her. Just like poof, this desire, whatever, whatever you need to do, God, but this is where I want to be. And then I got to the beginning of 2023, last year, about a year ago. I had a handful of conversations with a handful of other um, married men in the church, talking through difficulties within marriage and kind of what they're going through. And for whatever reason, those conversations, for whatever reason, uh, the spirit, uh, these conversations kept shifting around. Um, we kept coming back to Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 5 and his, his, in his word for husbands, calling for husbands to love, to nourish, to cherish their wives. And the primary way that they are to do this is by laying down their lives, becoming like Jesus through giving up of their desires, their ambitions, what they want for the sake of what their, their wives need. 
And so I was having this conversation with multiple guys and multiple conversations that I had with, the primary emphasis that this landed on for these guys was not like, what does it mean to lay down your life? It's like, there's a home intruder. I got it, babe. Like, that's how most of us think that that's what that passage is, not it. Um, But what I was saying was, man, the primary form that I think this is needing to take in your marriage is for you to lay down your ambition, for you to lay down your career dreams, not in just a blanket surrender, but like genuinely listening to your life and the fact that your desires are now married to your wife's. And so you've got to live in that tension. And when it comes to a stalemate, the husband, because he is called to embody and reflect Jesus, is the first one who says, okay, I'm, I'm going to give this up for the sake of what you need. And um, so I had that conversation, like really pastoral, just like that. And then I'd be like, okay, bye. And like, I would leave from that and I'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. Because I just was like, if I am saying this pretty passionately to multiple men and people in our church, this call to be a cruciform or a cross-shaped husband, and, and I am not even willing to entertain the reality that the very thing that God may be calling me to lay down for the sake of nourishing, cherishing, and loving my wife, and actually identifying that the desire that God has given her as a good one, that he's leading us through. If I'm not willing to go there, not only am I a hypocrite, which, quick thing, you never want in a preacher, because they're talking a lot. (laughs) Not only am I stepping into being a hypocrite, what I'm also doing here now is I am cutting myself off from one of the primary ways which Paul says I, as a married guy, can can image and reflect Jesus in my life. We all have a calling to be like Jesus. We all have a calling to self-giving love and surrender for the sake and the benefit of the other. And as being married to Aaron, I have lots of questions about what that looks like in my life. I do not need to have any questions about this. I'm sorry, I'm pointing at you. I have so many, I don't, I, I, I wake up every single day with, one of the primary things that I can assume because I'm married and I'm a dad is the primary places and ways in which I am going to reflect what it means to be like Jesus is in my marriage and in my parenting. So there's no questions about that. And so I just realized I I have to begin to reflect. And so reflecting on Jesus, that what that is meant to look like is in some way imaging the cross. I just began, my prayers began to sound like Jesus in Gethsemane in the garden before he went to his cross. I know it's not the same as being crucified, but bear with me, (laughs) please. Jesus, as he's looking down the cross, he's beginning to pray, God, if there's any other way to take this cup from me. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. And so that became my new prayer. And tied in along that was a deep dependence on the Holy Spirit. God, I need your spirit to give me the strength to hold this deeply held desire that honestly, I feel like you gave me to hold this in a new way in response to the story that you're telling within my life. And so I began to just lean into a deep dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so all of this, again, is in spring and summer of 2023, the beginning of summer 23. And so this, honestly, was the proving ground for so much of what came out of our Moore series last year. There are some of you who are so encouraging to me. You want to come up and be like, man, when you, this more series, it's just like you've stepped into something. There's just a clear anointing on God in the ministry right now and you're teaching. There's just this vibrancy that, that uh, you know, I haven't experienced from you before, which I'm like, thanks. That's kind of like a jab, but okay. <laughs> but what, what, what most of you didn't know was all of any, any of that that's true was birthed in the cauldron of my desires being radically surrendered over to God. There's no other way apart from it. Um, And so with that year of kind of prayer given, the plan was basically that after a year, Aaron and I would get away to basically talk and conclude, where do we go from here? What is God calling us to? And so we went to North Carolina, up in the mountains. Aaron's parents watched our kids for a couple of days where we basically, I, I came prepared. I had an iPad that we airplayed to this TV with this decision-making matrix that, you, that I can give you. Uh, that's very, very fun. Um, and so we just began to process through this decision with the leading question being, based off of the desires that you're feeling, this intergenerational life for your, your parents towards our kids and our kids towards you, and this being a, just a good desire, um, can, you, can we do five more years in L.A.? 
Because my sneaking suspicion was, if she can say yes to five years in LA, we're natives at that point, baby. Like, that's, <laughs> the kids are grown, like, we're good to go. It's, it's the, stel- do you see how stubborn the desires are? Um, and so we just began to process, and it just became evidently clear through a handful of conversation points. One, the clarifying nature for me of the desires that work within Aaron, because I just went through, like, if we could do five years, what would it take? It's like, you need a yard, baby? I don't know how, but I'm going to get you a yard, right? Like, do you need, what is it? Do you need, because, you know, you know LA. Is it, is it the traffic? I can't do anything about that. Like, we'll be a bike family. I don't know. Like, we'll figure this out. Is it, I'm going, am I not, am I not attentive enough as a husband? Am I not present enough as a dad? Like, I'm like, what needs to change? And, and one of the questions that I asked was, okay, so what if more or less life in LA kind of stays the same, but let's just say everybody in your family got picked up and dropped in Orange County or like San Diego or something. And Aaron's like, I could be here the rest of my life. And I was like, okay. And it just clarified that what's happening here is not a running from difficulty. It's not a desire for a more comfortable life. It's not a desire for a more easier life. What's going on here is a deep resonance with a deep calling for a particular form of life, one that is good. And so I couldn't do five years is kind of what we began to circle around. And so I began to ask questions of like, how long can you do? Are we talking like four and 11 months? Like, what are, we, what are we processing through here? And so Erin, after kind of doing the thing that, that she's prone to do, which is where she thinks of the thing that she wants to say, and then she thinks of the thing that I am going to say, and then she thinks of what the compromise would be those, in those two things, and then she says that. I was like, that sounds like a great conversation. I'd love to be a part of it. So I was like, can you? So I was like, you, you go for a walk, you come back, and you just pray, and you come back and name that number. In the doorway, name the number before you're able to start. Like, just name where you're at. She does that. She comes back. And she's like, I honestly, with the age of our kids, the age of my parents, and even just this, this what I'm feeling within me, like two years max. And I literally walk past her. And I go outside. And I'm like, well, now it's time for my walk with Jesus. Because, like, I, I need to process through this. And, um, and so, again, I just went back to that Gethsemane prayer. Just, God, I've prayed any other way. And it just seems that there's no other way. And so now I'm asking for the grace to walk this out. And my only prayer is, would you please just help me to let go of collective? To surrender this desire and for you to give me something in its place. And if you don't, you're still good. But I need, I, I just can't get over this. Because this heart that I have for collective is one that I just can't shake. Um... And so I came back in, and we began to process through two years max with school schedules and figuring all that insanity out. It was just, in, okay, next summer. And so we began to pray. Okay, so we're going to transition next summer. What, what are we doing? Like, what, we're going to move where? Like, are we moving into your parents' house? Like, that's a little too close for me personally, but, like, are we moving? Like, and, and I just, I found this... I cannot say it any other way, this deep, in, almost indifference to anything but the will of God that guided me through those conversations, where I was genuinely able to say, like, some of you, none of, none of you know Morganton, North Carolina, but I was able to say, if, if it's Morganton, North Carolina, they have one really good brewery, I can do Morganton, North Carolina. <laughs> they have Tokyo Grill also. I can, do, I can do that. But if it's, you know, rural, up in the mountains, some little tiny church, like, I... I now I say that, I'm like, there's no way you said that, right? I fully meant that in that moment. If this is what God has for us. I don't know where it came from other than the Spirit. It's this indifference to all but the will of God. And so we began to pray about what makes the most sense and about what would most deeply resonate within the desires of our heart from the place not of fighting over, but indifference. And we began to say, okay, Atlanta would be too far away for the sort of life that we're looking to live. And just very quickly, our attention fell on the city of Asheville, North Carolina. We have loved this city for years and years and years. Been there every single time we visit. Again, they have lots. They have more breweries per capita than any other American city. <laughs> um, and and yet, within the city, you have arts and culture and food and all the stuff that makes you know life fun. The kind of stuff that I just love being around. Um, but it also is this weird little city that's kind of the Portland of the South. Um, culturally, it's just one that we have a deep affinity. We've been doing ministry on the West Coast for most of our marriage and. Here you had 40 minutes away from Aaron's parents, depending on the traffic. Just kidding. It's always 45 minutes, though. Um, that was a very stupid joke. Um, but we just found this deep affinity for this city where I just, it, it's not LA. 
and it's not collective, and it will never be collective, which is the hardest part of this process for me. Um, I would clone all of you today if I could. Um, but we just began to look at Asheville and realize, man, this is a city where it fulfills the deepest desires of Aaron's heart. And I began to experience within my heart this, like this, I can't explain it any other way, this room opening up in my heart almost alongside my love. My, my love for collective never dropped away. It's still right there. But right alongside it, this new sense of calling and desire and love for Asheville began to warm in a way that it never had in over 20 visits over, you know, decades there. This deep love for the city and this affinity and this desire to do ministry within a place like Asheville. And you'll hear more about it in the weeks to come. But in particular, as we began to look at the city, we just came again, I'll talk more about this in the future, but just the reality that though there is some real, like a handful of really vibrant churches that are doing an incredible work in Asheville, it largely is a graveyard of churches from the past generation and a graveyard of church plants in this current one. It's a hard context. So Ryan's not signing up for an easy, easy thing here. Um, one pastor that we were talking to estimated that in his 11 years in the city, he'd seen 26 church plants come and go. And so just seeing this reality was like, man, there's a deep, this, these, I just, it's, it's so, this, these desires coming together that then begin to stir and turn into this conviction that I think we're supposed to plant a church in Asheville to bring all of the best experiences of what we've learned through Collective over these years and have this take the shape of this unique new thing in the middle of the city. So we began to pray through this um, and began, walked away from that cabin. Those three days in the cabin was something that we hadn't had in about a year, which was like a unified desires for the first time as a couple. It was wild. And so we had a couple of days before we came back to L.A., and so I went to Asheville by myself. Um, I was at a brewery. And... Uh, <laughs> on the French Broad River, and um, was journaling through just some of these like key components of just prayer. And so one of the key ones was me writing out this kind of prayer to God of like, I have decided that this is what you're calling me to, where even, not, not necessarily apart from, but distinct from Aaron's desire to be closer to family, you've now given me this new desire to see something vibrant happen within this city, to enter into the risk and the hope and the intention of, of planting and seeing what happens. And then I began to also write out and think through a couple other key components and desires, one of which was, I'll save for later, but, um, but the, the other ones was uh, these other key desires that were now being growing out of that, that other desire. And so the first was kind of in a word collective, not necessarily that we would plant like collective East Coast, um, but I've just seen over my years in ministry the destruction from like solo or like Lone Ranger planting of just the guy that's like, we're going to plant a church. And it's like, who are you? Do you know what you're doing? We'll figure it out. And he's like, no, that's not it, right? And then the guy's also like awful. Um, <laughs> and so I was saying, man, if, if, if we're going to do this, my deep desire is that this would be something that would be discerned, affirmed, and overseen by, like, by, by collective, in particular with Lorenzo and Isaac, that they would work through discerning this process with me. We would be sent out by collective so that I have an excuse to come back and preach from time to time and hang out with you guys. Um, and that there would be financial support and even the invitation as we begin to develop a core group for people from a collective to discern and pray through like us if, if God might be calling them to something like this. Like I just, I wanted this thing to be a, a thing that this, this like daughter of collective, not an independent thing the Smiths were doing, but something that collective was unified with us in seeing. And so when I came back and began to share with Lorenzo that we would be leaving and this kind of desire welling up within me to plant in Asheville, we entered into last summer and fall as a process of discernment. It began with me and Lorenzo going to Asheville, just the two of us for three days, hanging out with pastors in the area, praying and seeing the city for himself to see what we're talking about here. And then we also entered into this kind of integrated assessment process where Aaron and I went through a marriage evaluation, a psychological, like all of these evaluations, like these people can, can do this. Like, they, like this is gonna be okay, this is worth doing. And so we, once we went to New York to be assessed by this um, external like, assessment organization who then presented a 120-page document about the Smiths. Um, yeah, yeah, it was really fun. Um, <laughs> which then the pastors of Collective took and we did our own internal discernment and assessment of basically the Smiths and our calling to Asheville, all of which led to kind of an affirmation that this does in fact seem to be what God has for the Smiths and has for the city of Asheville. The second thing that I jotted was, in a word, slowness. Like I've seen a lot of 
damage done by pastors that go off on their own. I've seen a lot of damage done by church plants that go way too fast, by churches that go faster than God. (laughs) The damage that they do to their people, to their leaders, and even to the city, when they sooner or later they implode because they don't have the structure for the growth. So my conviction is we're going to go slow and give ourselves over to the pace of the Spirit rather than my timelines or anybody else's. And so the primary form that that first took for me was um, that we wouldn't just plant immediately after stepping out of collective, but I would take a three-month sabbatical. Um, Most often, pastors take one every seven years, so I'm like, I'm a year and a half away from getting it anyway, so we're bumping it up for the sake of being able to enter into this new work from a place of rest and health and deep, deep work. And so just about everybody affirmed that. They're like, yeah, that makes total sense. Low is like, you should take a gap year and like travel the world. And I was like, well, I kind of want to like settle into the Asheville. I want to, you know, do that thing. But part of that assessment process that we went through was everyone affirming that three-month process. But, um, and this is where I I had to once again wrestle with my desires, was um, through that organization, through talking with pastors from the region who know the city, and even within the eternal assessment, everybody's saying totally three months as part of a larger 12 to 18-month period of the Smiths settling into the city, like becoming Ashevillians becoming settled in the city, becoming neighbors, and just settling in. And so, like I said, I was pushing back and forth on that for a while, and then I finally gave myself up. My commitment to collective and to the wisdom was, was to say yes and to receive that, um, and even finding that as I did, that the Spirit just confirming it through all of these different ways, one of which was the slap in the face from the end of Acts chapter 8. That if I really do think that like in some way I'm leaning into Philip's story here, I had to follow it. Verse 27. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet of Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? 31, how can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this, from Isaiah, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb is silent before its shear, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is this prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. Just the dynamic that I'm leaning into. When Philip showed up in Samaria, Buddy just got to preach him. But on the desert road that he was called to, the spirit, his calling that he gave to Philip wasn't, hey, go preach at that guy. But hey, go join that chariot. Go walk with him and listen to the questions that he's asking. And so what grew out of that was my desire was for those 12 to 18 months be a period of me walking alongside the chariot of Asheville, so to speak to hear the questions that they're asking, to preach and plant a church that would be bringing not just my you know, outside ideas of what the questions they're asking are, but what are they truly asking. So I know this brings a lot of emotions and questions. Uh, the, the plan in, in bringing this out now is that we've got until the end of June, will be my, the plan is my last Sunday, um, to process through those questions and their emotions. And Lorenzo's gonna come up in a moment to talk about where we go from here, but let me just one more time bring this in. The whole point of me talking through this is one to bring you in on what we've been going through, but my hope is that you would see this as a practical example, imperfect, obviously, through most of my stubborn, stubbornness, but an ex- this, this, this is the sweet stuff of what it means to pursue God. Your worship gatherings, your prayer practice, and all those things are great, great supplements the reality of what it means to seek after God, what we're so deeply trying to lean into is a deep surrender and opening up of the very basis of your heart, your desire, your ambitions, and your dreams, and then allowing God to lead you through those things as you saturate them in prayer, with community, with time, and within discernment. And so that's what we've sought to enter into, and that's even what's been guiding us through is is this deep commitment to say yes to Jesus wherever he leads us. And so, um, Lo, I'm gonna invite you to come up and and where we go from here. Thanks, Ryan. All right, so, uh, yeah, the obvious question is where we go from here, right? 
I want to remind us right at the start, church belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. We get to be involved in it. We get to participate in his work. We get to steward the aspects that he entrusts to us. But the church remains his, and he retains ownership of it. We don't get to control it. We don't get to manufacture it. We don't get to build it according to our own design or desires or anything like that. And so while hearing about this is not what we wanted to hear, we didn't want to hear that Ryan was leaving. That's not why we came here today. That's not what we want to hear. There is an element of that where we can say yes because the church isn't about Ryan or any of us. It's about Jesus. The church belongs to him. And so we say yes to Jesus regarding whatever he wants to do with his church. Guess what the church is? It's not the nonprofit called Collective Church. It's us. The church is people. The church is not a place where, but a people who always has been. We've always talked about that. So really what this is now, it's us trying to orient ourselves around God's plan for us as a spiritual family. When Ryan told me, uh, my heart fell, like I'm sure many of you experienced, because this wasn't the plan. But we don't have those kinds of plans, as we just heard. We submit to whatever God wants to do. And so I know we're feeling a lot of things, but here we have just heard Ryan give an account of his personal story of what it means to follow Jesus and how weird would it be if we had a teaching pastor who didn't practice what he preached. So we're cool with that. So all these things are lining up in in ways we almost don't want them to. Church belongs to Jesus, yep. (laughs) He does with it what he wants, yep. He calls us, we follow him, yep. You know, and then at the end of that, it's like, oh, but I didn't want that outcome. Well, that's because our plans aren't his. His plans matter most. God's plans matter most. And so we're, we get to be along for the ride. But the, here's, the, here's the cool thing. Ryan's not taking Jesus with him. <laughs> I... Now I'm going to need to pause and correct something. <laughs> because he is. <laughs> but he's also not. Because if God is doing something in Ryan and Aaron's life, that means he's also doing something here. And Jesus is going to continue to be the head of the church. And if the future of collective does not involve Ryan And Aaron, the future of collective is still in God's hands, right? And he's still going to do good things. Ryan's not going to work at collective anymore, but Jesus will. We know that. I can't tell you what he's going to do. It's not something we can predict the specifics of, but we have full assurance that he will. So this is where we just buckle up and we're in, let's just, let's see what happens. Um, one of the things that we have seen as this whole thing has unfolded and, and it's, it's been a rough few months. It's been a lot of work. It's been a lot of praying, a lot of processing, trying to figure out, like, God, what are you up to? We've already seen God working. When this stuff happens, God doesn't just work within a single thing. What I mean by that is we can walk away from a situation like this and man, like, what is God up to? As if there's like one answer. There is, there's no answer because it's the wrong question unless we ask it in a different way because when we say, God, what are you up to? There's like a thousand things. It's not one thing, there's a thousand things. And I've been comparing it to a Rubik's Cube. If you're like me, you have the brain capacity of getting one color done, and then that's it. 
and no matter what, you can get the one color, and then, you know, that's a good day. And you can feel very proud of yourself and feel very accomplished. But then there's those total psychopaths that know how to do every color at the same time. And those people that have those strange and mysterious skills that just start, their fingers are just flying and, and you can't even see what's happening and all of a sudden, boom, it's done. And they're like, and every color is where it needs to be on its proper side all by itself. That's how God is working in this situation. That's how God often works. We think he's doing one thing, putting one side together when all these sides are coming together. Ryan already told you there's the Aaron side, there's the Ryan side, there's the collective side, there's the pastor's side, there's the you side, and then even individually. Like there's, God's doing something in all of us in the midst of all of this. And so what we want to do is sort of acknowledge that and pay attention to that and realize, oh God, you're really doing something. And when we see what it is, even when it's not what we would have preferred or wouldn't have been our first choice, when we, we, when we get to see God work, it gives us the opportunity to be able to say yes to that because I just want to be wherever you are, God. I want to be a part of whatever you're doing. And wow, this isn't how I would have written, written the script. If this is how you're writing the script, God, I'm glad I'm in it and I want to be a part of it. And so we say yes to God. So part of how we've seen God putting all those colors in the right spots and moving all those pieces started happening with the obvious question of where do we go from here and what happens next and who's going to be our new teaching pastor. And I'm happy to tell you it's not me. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> And that was, that was one thing we didn't have to pray about. <laughs> we knew that right away. Okay, so then who and what and what, what's, what are you doing? And there were some early ideas that were tossed out, uh, almost quickly dismissed, where it was like, okay, well, God's going to have to move mountains for that to happen. But then God started moving mountains. And the pieces of the Rubik's Cube started moving and we started paying attention to that and what is happening God are you, are you really orienting this the way we think you are or the way it looks because when the pieces are moving you can't really tell right initially but then things start to come together it's like whoa God are you, are you really doing this and so we just committed to um, a sound process The church belongs to Jesus. Pastors have given the incredible privilege and honor and responsibility of stewarding it. And we have to try to lead it the best we possibly can, mindful of the fact that it doesn't belong to us. And we need to lead in a way that reflects Christ. So when we think about Ryan's replacement, and that's like a very sobering decision because it has to do with the future of the church. And um, so we just committed to let the process play out. We, wanted there to, we didn't want to cut corners. We didn't want to make any assumptions. We weren't going to force anything. We weren't going to manufacture anything. God, you just kind of, you, you got you to gotta do the work. You know, God, give us the discernment to be able to recognize what that is. Give us the boldness and the courage as well to do our job in that. But God, show us. And things started to take shape. And when it got to the point where we realized, oh, we think we see all the colors on the Rubik's Cube and they're all in the right spot. We think we see what God's been doing. We kind of agreed, cool. Yeah, we think we know, but like, let's keep praying. <laughs> Again, just wanted to make sure the process was sound. And then when we, when we were sure that we were sure, we extended an invitation to our next teaching pastor, who would be Casey Fritz. So... Somebody's laughing in the front row here. That's because some of you know who Pastor Casey Fritz is. Some of you don't know who Pastor Casey Fritz is. Let me tell you who he is. He's the guy that planted Collective Church with me. And so uh, in this weird, surprising, 
turn of events. He's coming back. And it's just weird because when we hired Ryan four years ago, the plan wasn't for him to be here only four years. And now we see that God has been moving those Rubik's Cube pieces for four plus years. Not our plan, but apparently God's. And we're trying to recognize that and say yes to how he works. So a question is, all right, so he planned a collective church with you. Cool. Uh, many in our church know who Casey is. Um, but for those of you who don't and don't know the story, why did he ever leave? Well, I'm happy to tell you it was similar to Ryan's story. He, he didn't disqualify himself in any way. He didn't screw something up and do something dumb. Um, nothing nefarious, nothing like that. It was a season that God called him out the way God's calling out Ryan. And it's not what we wanted, and it's not what Casey wanted. But God was calling him out of ministry to take him into a season of deeper healing, and there was a, just a deeper work that God wanted to do in Casey. And some of you were here back then when we went through all that, and it was super disruptive. Again, because it's not what we wanted. But we were saying yes to Jesus, and God was calling Casey out of ministry in order to do that work in him. And Casey's been doing well in the years that he's been gone. I wondered, no offense to him, but I, I wondered, having gone through what he's gone through and being in the spot he's in and having to step out, like, how's, what's his relationship with Jesus going to be like? And I'm an eyewitness, and some of you are, are also eyewitnesses who've maintained a relationship with him. Casey has been doing awesome. He has been pursuing Jesus, and he never wavered. He pressed in more into Jesus than he ever had without the distractions of ministry and all that kind of stuff. And we saw, we saw God do an incredible work in him. And I talked to Casey, and every time I talked to him, it's like, wow, like you're really, God's been doing a special work in you. I can hear it. And so he's been, he's been doing well. And um, he, God even called him back into ministry. He was appointed as an elder at his church in Connecticut. And uh, um, I have met with his elders, his fellow elders, and they are sad that um, he's leaving, um, but they send him with their blessing. Um, he's highly regarded there, and I know they're going to miss him because we went through that too, and so I know the feeling. So part of it, I was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but like, it's not my fault. <laughs> Talk to God about it. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so he'll be coming back. And so Casey's a man of integrity. He's a man of passion. He loves people. He, um, uh, he's he's going to be a blessing to our church uh, in the way that it was before and the, Ryan that ha in the way that Ryan has been. And we're looking forward to him coming back. And then, like, what does that look like now, God? What do you, where are you going to take us? What are you, you going to do? And so we're looking forward to that. And... Uh, the, the story is, is, is quite remarkable, and uh, as Ryan said, we're committed to being transparent with you guys. That's why we're talking about all this stuff. And so, uh, and largely today, we spent time on going through Ryan's story, and next Sunday, we want you to come back because Casey's going to be here, and the pastors and Casey are going to have a conversation, and we're going to share a little bit more of the story with you guys. We want to fill you in on the greater details. We want you to know, like, where did this all come from? And give Casey a, sh a chance to share his side. The pastors, um, Isaac and I, uh, a chance to share a little bit about our side as we're sort of like not the moving pieces in this, but we're just along for the ride. But we want you guys to be aware of what's been transpiring. We want you guys to be able to see how God has been orchestrating this in the way that we've been able to see it. We want, to, we want to take you down that path and that journey of watching the Rubik's Cube and all the pieces moving. We want to share all that with you. So be here next Sunday. We'd love to share that with you. Moving forward beyond that, um, Casey will be back with us once a month to preach. Um, he's also going to be going on staff with us part-time starting in February, working behind the scenes from Connecticut, obviously connecting with Ryan a lot, uh, and just doing other things with me behind the scenes. 
um, and then he'll be here in mid-May. So May 12 will be his first Sunday here with us full-time as our primary teaching pastor. And the amazing thing is, we have the luxury of having some overlap between Casey and Ryan, because Ryan will still be here. So they both will be here serving together, and so that's mid-May, and then, as Ryan mentioned earlier, uh, the Smiths will be moving to North Carolina at the end of June. So that's what's happening on that front. And then, as Ryan said, they're pursuing what they feel is God's call upon their life and what's, what's next for them, and their hope and intention is to plant a church in Asheville, and we... we um, we love them, and we're going to get behind this, and we're going to support this. We've always been a church that's been into church planting. We actually just wrapped up a four-year commitment to a church plant in Cincinnati, and they're doing amazing. And uh, it's just God's timing again. A little bit more movement of that Rubik's Cube. That commitment just wrapped, and now the timing of this. And so we've put together, because we want to set them up for success as best we can, we put together a pretty detailed sending plan, and uh, that includes a long on-ramp for them. And the idea is that uh, we're going to send them as embedded missionaries in Asheville, not as church planters. But as they live there as embedded missionaries, certainly the desire is to see a new church spring up and be expressed in the city of Asheville. And like Ryan said, it's a, it's a tough ground. And that was made abundantly clear to me. I was there for three days <laughs> talking to pastors. I was like, wow. But there's also... There's also some really great churches there, a few really great uh, churches. Ryan is not going to be on an island. He'll have great people around him, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the people and the churches that are in the area that, um, that they can connect with and all that kind of stuff. But we've got this long on-ramp because we want to set them up as best as we possibly can, and then we'll just see what God does, and we're, we're going with uh, milestones over timelines. And we're going to move when God says move. And uh, we're going to shift gears when God says shift gears. And then there will be a point where we want to see um, a little bit more of a separation as something there starts to emerge. So that is the plan. And uh, I started with this idea. I started off by saying that Jesus is the head of the church. He really is. He really, really is. And so we follow Jesus, who's the boss, we do what he says, and we say yes to him, even when he asks us to do hard things, and even when he calls us to make sacrifices, when he allows us to keep our desires, and when he asks us to lay them down. So we follow Jesus.